This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. I can feel my face when I'm with you. Yeah, investors don't love shares of Facebook. Face it, Facebook, investors just don't like you today. Shares tanking down more than 19% after months of scandal and criticism finally hitting the company where it hurts, and we're talking about growth. Let's get into this with our own Sarah Fryer, Bloomberg News technology reporter. Uh, she's joining us from her 960 studio in San Francisco. I got to tell you, uh, Sarah, it was so much fun watching uh, the Bloomberg Live blog as Facebook reported you and others really just you know giving us uh, minute by minute, second by second analysis of what was going on. Needless to say, bottom line, disappointing quarter. Absolutely. I mean, I have covered this company for years, and they have never uh, missed on top line revenue like this. And that was, I guess the last time they did it was in 2015, and they've never fallen this much in trading. It's really quite stunning. And in a I don't think that we're going to see that kind of recovery of the stock that we did after the Cambridge Analytica scandal. What we heard yesterday on the call was Facebook CFO David Weiner saying, this is something you guys got to get used to. Our growth is just going to be slower from here on out. So I also want to bring in our colleague Paul Sweeney. He's, of course, U.S. Director of Research and Senior Media and Internet Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. He is here right now with us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio in New York. So, Paul, you you heard a bit of what Sarah just said about this being somewhat unprecedented and also the idea that the CFO said, get used to it. This is life going forward. What do you make of that? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, they, they certainly dropped, uh, you know, a bombshell last night. The, the, the two things that really jumped out at uh, people in terms of the guidance was the revenue guidance when the CFO guided to slower revenue growth. But when you looked onto the, onto the Bloomberg terminal last night and you looked at the revenue forecast, uh, the street was generally pretty good with the revenue guidance. They had slowing revenue growth throughout the second half of the year in, in, into next year. What was not captured, I think, and what was a surprise to investors was the cost guidance. They were talking about a higher level of expenses, number one, and a longer duration for those higher level of expenses. And when you put the slowing revenue growth with the higher expenses, then you get the bombshell, which was the profit margins for this business are going down dramatically from the mid-40% range, which is what the consensus was for 2020, down to like the mid-30s, which is Oof. where they were guiding. And on a company of this size, that's just massive. Uh, and that accounts for what's happening in a stock today. So Sarah mentioned, um, you know, this is something that they're unlikely to immediately bounce back from uh, like they did with the Cambridge Analytica, because this is uh, kind of a, a re-rating of the profit outlook, at least for the next couple of years for this c- company. Well, Sarah, so shame on all of us, because we've been saying, guys, you got to have more, you know, uh, p- things in place, people in place to kind of track what's being, you know, uh, on Facebook and, and so on, uh, really kind of keep track of everything. So we knew that that was going to mean hiring of people, it's going to be more expensive. So shame on all of us for not realizing it, or shame on the company for not saying, hey, just understand, you want us to do this, we're going to do it, it's going to cost. Well, listen, what Paul's talking about with the margins being lower, I think that that does relate to the fact that Facebook's having to spend a lot more on content moderators and fixing its, its privacy issues. But really, the big problem is that their days of easy growth in the main social network, uh, Facebook just 
increasing its revenues by uh, dialing up the number of users in the app or the frequency of ads in the news feed, those days are over. And what they need to do is on top of spending to solve these problems, they need to spend money on actually finding out whether these new business models will work in messaging, in virtual reality, and in content, which is very expensive. I mean, these are all things that Facebook is going to have to spend to grow with. And I think that this transition didn't need to be this harsh. Uh, The company has had uh, WhatsApp, for example, since 2014. Now, I know they've, they've had some struggles with the founders over how to monetize it, whether to monetize it, but certainly Wall Street expected that to be monetized at some point, and Facebook was saying, we can wait, let's wait till this gets bigger, let's wait till it gets past a billion users, let's wait until we figure out the right kind of business model we can afford to. Now, they're saying, look at all the potential we have. Well, we've heard about potential for years and years and years. Um, this is is a more dramatic inflection point for the company than they could have had if they had just sort of worked on those other bets a little earlier in the life cycle. So, Paul, looking ahead, you know, one of the things that Zuckerberg pointed out and that a lot of folks have pointed out before and after the earnings is the Instagram uh, factor here. How positive is that going forward? And can that really help right the Facebook ship to some extent? Yeah, well, Facebook, um, you know, it has, you know, arguably four levers on the revenue uh, dial, you know, kind of four levers to pull for revenue growth. One is Facebook.com. The second is Instagram. Uh, and then WhatsApp and Messenger. So Instagram, after Facebook, is the most uh, mature in terms of growing that revenue. But even they called out on the, on the call that um, some of the uh, new products, advertising products that they'd rolled out, uh, weren't monetizing as fast mm. as they thought on Instagram. And I think that's one of the drivers for the slowing revenue outlook. So, you know, that sounds to me like something they can fix um, because um, it sounds more like a product issue. And we've seen that before with Facebook and other uh, tech media companies. Um, but the bigger issue is, you know, when you think about the longer term levers uh, of um, monetization in terms of uh, WhatsApp and, and Messenger, um, they've always gotten the benefit of the doubt that they will be able to monetize those right. businesses like they have for Facebook. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, benefit of the doubt took a little bit of a hit last night. And uh, so there's a little bit more of let's mm. let, let's wait a quarter or two. I've talked to a lot of investors today. The people were like, Boy, usually I would have seen a 20% pullback as a chance to jump in. But let me take a, a look here to see whether they can uh, you know, right the ship a little bit. Paul, more risk in owning Facebook or more value ultimately? Longer term, I think there's uh, value. I think, the, uh, I think the bullish folks uh, that are – the folks that are still in the stock here, maybe even buying it on weakness, they're saying, listen – I'm here for the long-term revenue play, which is consumers are spending more and more time online. Advertisers are following, and there's only two ways to play it, Facebook and Google. Maybe a third with Amazon, but, you know, those are the plays. All right, we got to run. Guys, thank you so much. Paul Sweeney, U.S. Director of Research and Senior Media and Internet Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence in our New York studio. Sarah Fryer, great reporting on Facebook, as always. Technology reporter at Bloomberg News. You can get it if you really want. You can get it if you really all right, everybody, we want to talk a little bit about uh, the market environment and maybe some stocks you might want to put into your portfolio based on our next guest. Uh, let me just uh, remind you, uh, the Hennessy Equity and Income Fund, beating most of its peers over the past five years in the 82nd percentile, returning on average nearly 7% annually. Mark Duvall is Equity Portfolio Manager at Hennessy Equity and Income Fund, $30 billion in assets under management. Is that the fund, Mark, or overall? Uh, 
it's probably overall. The fund is not, is not $30 billion. Okay. It's a bit smaller than that. <laughs> Just oh, going to say. Approaching. But okay. it's a big one. Uh, Mark uh, in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Um, nice to have you here with us. Thank you. Good to be here. Hey, before we get into some of the stock picks, because I love to talk names, um, you look at the market environment. Um, is it, uh, I don't know, with earnings and stuff, good to see a couple of names beat up because it provides some <laughs> buying opportunities for a value person? Yeah, we are seeing some, obviously today, Facebook down big. Um, seeing some... Stocks, more volatility, I guess, this year than we've seen in the last couple of years. But generally speaking, earnings season has gone well. Um, and I think the U.S. economy is in very good shape, which I think that's the good news. And it's so much driven by the consumer, which is 70% of GDP. And you see housing values stable to improving unemployment at 4%, wage growth. So all those things are good. So I think the economy is in good shape. That can continue. We're a little bit more balanced in our overall view of the market, though, because uh, valuations are fairly high, kind of 17 times PE, 13 times cash flow. Call that maybe 15 to 20% premium to historical averages. And you can hold up that way as long as inflation and interest rates remain low. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the Fed's raising the Fed funds rate. They're reversing years of quantitative easing. We're starting to see a little bit more inflation, some wage inflation as well. So those are things that make us a little bit worrisome about the market overall. Not negative, but as we look forward, expect more volatility and probably more muted returns than what we've experienced the last five years. And with this fund, the Hennessy Equity and Income Fund, it is a much more defensive way to invest. So it's 60% equity, 40% fixed income, but all of it following a very defensive model of high return on capital businesses with very strong balance sheets to really buffer the downside. Well, and one of the names that jumped out at me as we were looking at some of your top picks is Dollar Tree. And I think back to the last time we were going into a recession, one of the most profitable private equity deals of all time was Dollar General. And I wonder what you see in the economy that makes you excited about Dollar Tree here. Now, Dollar Tree, I think, is a very attractive stock today. It trades at about 10 times cash flow. The market's at about 13 times. So a nice discount. Dollar Tree over the years has really been the best manager in the dollar space. It's the only one that's it, everything's a dollar in a Dollar Tree store. Uh, their operating margins for just the Dollar Tree segment are about 12%, which is very high for a retailer. Yeah. And they've done a great job in terms of sourcing across the world and, and finding products that really give you that, that treasure hunt atmosphere that mm-hmm. you look for in a Dollar Tree store. Why it's down today and why it struggled recently is back in 2015, they acquired Family Dollar, mm-hmm. which correct, c- competes more directly with uh, Dollar General. Yeah. Uh, but Family Dollar, more urban stores, pricing from $1 to $20 for each item. So it's a little bit different than Dollar Tree. Much lower margin, more competitive, but 4% margins versus Dollar Tree at 12 The hope was over time, Dollar Tree management, which is really the best in the business, could improve margins at Family Dollar. It hasn't happened yet. Hasn't played out that way yet, but we still think it can. And at this type of valuation at 10 times cash flow, I think you're getting Dollar Tree with very little price priced in at all for family dollars. So hmm. we think it's a really attractive time. And we noticed just recently uh, at Dollar Tree, three, uh, three board members stepping up with their own money and buying back stock. So when we see insider activity yeah. like that, buys and sells, it can be something that we take note of. So seeing that is, is a positive, I think. Stocks come down an awful lot this year, down 16%. Have yeah. you been buying as it's been moving down or what? Have you been adding to that position that you guys have? We have a pretty large position, so we haven't added to it. And, okay. and the way we work with this, this Hennessy Equity and Income Fund, it is the focus is left tail risk and protecting downside. So we generally don't average down. Okay. Um, in a case like this where we see an attractive valuation, a company that we think has sustainable competitive advantages and some insider buying, that might be attractive for us to consider. You hold for a while, though, right? We do. So, I mean, is there a point, though, when you say, well, wait a minute, we've got a problem here? Yes. So we, uh, the average or what would period, make you say that? So the average holding period is five years, so okay. 20% turnover. What would make us say, gosh, we've got a problem here is if we see 
I talked about insider activity. If we see cluster selling from executives, that's often a sign there's something wrong. Also, if we if we sense that Dollar Tree is deviating from their core competency, maybe changing their stores, or if they go out and do some other deal that's away from what they do well, that's typically the reasons why we would sell. Or if you spot, not so much with Dollar Tree, but across the different uh, um, segments of the market, if you see disruptive innovation, mm. um, that's, those are reasons often. If you get out in front of that, those are reasons we would sell the stock. I know another name we want to talk about is Carnival, and we were talking about it a little bit before uh, we came back on air. Uh, Carol's done some great interviews over the years with uh, Arnold Donald, who's the CEO there. What do you see? That That's a... That's a name that I think catches a lot of people's fascinations, if in part only because people know what they do. People know what a cruise is. <laughs> it's yeah. so true. No, definitely true. I think for those who cruise occasionally or often, it's a very good experience and certainly a, a cheaper way to get a really good vacation experience versus versus the other options that are out there. So that's part of what we like. But the big thing, we bought this a few years ago when there was a lot of negative PR around cruise ships, people getting sick, other problems. It created a good value opportunity. Um, we love to find companies that we think have sustainable competitive advantages and oftentimes in an oligopolistic industry. So few few players. So in this case, you have Carnival, Royal Caribbean, and Norwegian that really own all the major cruise lines, call yeah. it 80 85% market share. So over time, should see pricing power and yeah. rising margins. Carnival is very focused on improving return on capital, which we think is one of the more important metrics in, that drives for shareholders. And also, obviously, they have a very big moat around the business and that it costs upwards of a billion dollars to build a ship. So not a lot of new competition coming in. They take three years to build a ship. So you can see where capacity is going over time. And finally, I would mention there's some nice demographic tailwinds. We were talking earlier, but older people tend to cruise more. And also, Carnival has been talking about this more in recent conference calls. Uh, with the millennials seeking more experiences, willing to pay for that, that's helping them on, from the demographic tailwind. So you're seeing that flow through their numbers. Their bookings are up. Uh, prices are higher per right. bookings. Onboard spending's up. People spending on cruises, different itineraries. Well, and you want to grab them young, right, and hope that they stick around and come back and do sure. cruises you know, over the years, bring the family and all that good stuff. Uh, Mark Duvall, nice to have you in studio. Thank you. Great Thank to be here. You. Yeah, great to have you. Equity Portfolio Manager at Hennessy Equity and Income Fund, $30 billion in assets overall, Bloomberg 1130 Studio in New York. Well, almost always what we need is a little more Craig Moffat. He is one of the most potent and powerful voices on Wall Street. He, of course, is the founder and senior analyst at Moffat Nathanson, joins us from New York over the phone. Craig, great to be with you. Uh, Talking Comcast, I'm looking at your research note here, and it really sums it all up in the headline. 2018 Q2 earnings, ah, what might have been. Such an interesting (laughs) tale that Comcast has been (laughs) weaving of late, isn't it? Yeah, it sure is. Um, you know, investors, it's, it's a bit bittersweet. They put up a fantastic quarter, and uh, I noted in our report to our clients this morning, um, in some ways the best way to play it is to invest in charter instead. Um, because <laughs> wow. as, good as, as good as Comcast's results are, unfortunately Comcast is sort of in this betwixt and between strategy of you're not really sure whether it's a cable company, um, or whether it's in the process of becoming um, a, a completely different type of com- company with the acquisition of, of Sky in Europe. So, um, and we won't know about the final outcome of the Sky saga for weeks or months. What should they be, Craig? Well, today's results just remind you that although right now sentiment around cable is pretty negative, the cable business is 
humming along just like it always has. It's a really good business. And, you know, I've been saying um, on your show for years, Carol, that, yeah. that cable companies are not media companies. Cable companies are infrastructure providers, and they have the advantage in infrastructure. Um, it's wires in the ground, and they've got the best wire. And as long as investors keep that in mind, you can screen out all the noise about, oh, my goodness, what might happen if video starts to go via Hulu or other stuff. The answer is doesn't matter, still coming over well, the wire, and right. there's still plenty of ways they can monetize that. Well, speaking of monetization, they do that through also content, right? I mean, that's a good model still, Craig, for them? Well, I mean, everybody's fighting for content at this point. Well, Comcast um, owns NBC Universal, of mm-hmm. course, and that's a content business. But Comcast is interesting in that you can really think of it as a mini conglomerate. Um, There's no particular synergy between the fact that they own a cable company and they own NBCU. Now, as it happens, they when they bought NBCU back in 2010, they bought it for a very good price and they've operated it extremely well. So it's turned out to be a very good investment. Um, But it hasn't been strategically made more valuable by virtue of the fact that it's under the same roof as a as a distribution company, and vice versa, by the way. Um, Com- Comcast cable business is not better or more valuable by virtue of the fact that Comcast also owns NBC. Right. Um, so they own two good businesses, um, but in some ways what investors are struggling with is, okay, now you're thinking about buying a third business. That business would be more tied to the NBC side. That's Sky in Europe, a satellite distribution company. But it also comes with a lot of baggage. Satellite is technologically disadvantaged. Um, It has a lot of operating risk associated with some proprietary content that might expire. And so investors are scratching their head over, what exactly is this investment? Is it a cable company? Is it a media company? Is it trying to be another Netflix? And how do I put all those things together in one stock price in a sensible way? So, Craig, let's widen the aperture a a little bit. I know we've talked to you over the past couple weeks a bit about all the drama that was going on. And I can't help but think about all these big titans of the media industry staring each other down. You've got Murdoch and Iger getting together at the Vineyard. And obviously you have Brian Roberts here sort of being left out of it, you know, what's the next step in this kind of recalibration, I guess, of the big media firms? Well, it's a really interesting question. And I think to to get some sense of where things are going, um, it may make sense to look first at AT AT&T. And I say that not because there are people who that are going to copy the AT&T strategy, but I think there are an awful lot of people looking at AT&T and saying, there but for the grace of God go I. Thank goodness <laughs> I didn't do the same things that AT&T did. Um, AT&T has pursued a vertical integration strategy, um, first with, um, with DirecTV, that has turned out to be um, an unmitigated disaster. Um, and, and now more recently with Time Warner, that's obviously too new to judge. Um, but AT&T is in real trouble because of its strategy. And my sense is there are, that, that right now um, there are more companies likely to say, I'm, I'm not, not so fast. I'm not sure I want to go down any of these paths. You know, Verizon, for example, that people talk about all the time as Verizon is the next one to do X, Y, or Z in media. They're actually doing very well precisely because they didn't listen to the bankers and, and all the pundits that were telling them to go off and do these M&A transactions that, in retrospect, would have been terrible deals. 
great stuff. Craig Moffat, always great to talk to you. Founder and senior analyst Moffat Nathanson joining us on the phone from New York City. Thanks so much. This is Bloomberg Markets with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. All right, let's get to our next guest, Quincy Crosby with us, Chief Market Strategist at Prudential Financial. She joins us from Newark, New Jersey. Quincy, understandably so. We've been all about earnings uh, this week, especially with the deluge of numbers coming out results, and in particular on uh, technology, especially after disappointing results from Facebook and Netflix. Amazon just out initially some disappointment. Now the stock's up about 1.7% or so. Um, What do you make of what we're seeing? Let's start with those technology earnings. What does it say? to you? Well, it's saying that, you know, the market seems to think that they're priced for perfection. And if they don't deliver, this market is prepared to punish. Uh, the market wants to see top line revenue growth, but also wants optimistic and positive guidance. And if you don't deliver, the market is prepared to be very selective and punish. And, and maybe that's the way markets are supposed to be. Uh, when you have a backdrop that, you know, there are concerns over, uh, over potential growth globally, tariffs. Uh, the market is, is, is saying we are going to be selective, but we're also going to be reward companies where we think there's going to be growth. And so as you hear from various companies across the spectrum, uh, Quincy, how cautious are the executives and, and how are investors uh, responding to that given all of these different inputs that you're having to take into account? Well, it is interesting because what what we're watching in this particular market with with Netflix disappointing, Facebook disappointing, uh, is that the uh, traders and investors are prepared to go elsewhere. They're broadening the market. So it's not as if this package of of fang names, and we put them in in a cluster, is enough to, you know, have markets to uh, investors and traders sell everything and then wait for the next catalyst for um, for tech. They're, they're moving into uh, health care. They're moving into energy, f- a finance, financial companies. That's a positive for the market because it's broadening out. And the concerns were focused on those high-flying momentum names in tech. And, and, and there were worries, concerns, that if they were to weaken, the entire market would collapse. But again, what we're seeing is that investors are broadening out. Even the Russell 2000 was up to and that's uh, that's good news for the market. Yeah, I will say the outperformers this year, if I look at the S&P 500 major industry groups, information technology, consumer discretionary, healthcare, energy, financials, that's uh, kind of the, the names at the top. Hey, just an update on Amazon, everybody. Stock's still up, but uh, has certainly pared back on some of its earlier gains initially after the earnings release. Still up about half a percent. Some insight, too, from our team, Spencer Soper, Olivia Zaleski, saying the operating income forecast for third quarter between $1.4 billion and $2.4, showing that Amazon continues to manage expenses and improve profitability while fending off competition in the U.S. and abroad. And they're also talking about their shift away from first-party sales, uh, I guess, to, uh, you know, uh, third-party sales. And what happens is Amazon apparently records less revenue on those third-party sales uh, than first-party sales, but those third-party sales tend to be more profitable. And that might explain the earnings number disconnect, maybe from the revenue uh, disconnect. Do you want to be buying any of these tech names or do you want to be talking, uh, do you want to be buying some of those other sectors that you mentioned, Quincy, uh, at this point? 
you know, usually we were buying on the dip. The You know, you still have a Federal Reserve that wants to continue raising rates. Uh, the tech names have been a, a sector for those who are worried about growth because they need to, to buy growth. No, I think you're going to see buyers come in uh, as these names uh, weaken. I, you know, at some point, Facebook is going to be attractive. You already have analysts coming in and suggesting that we're very close to a bottom on Facebook. You saw Netflix coming back. So you want to be in tech. But I also suggest that in addition to the name, the sectors you just mentioned, industrials, which have been mm-hmm. dormant because of trade yeah. fears, got a bid today. So even if this is a temporary detente with uh, the EU, uh, it certainly has helped those those sectors that where there was worry. So this is still a trader's market until we have some more guidance on tariffs and also where the right. Fed is, is, is looking. Got it. And growth. Well, tomorrow Could- will be Quincy Crosby over Prudential Financial. Thank you so much. Bloomberg Markets, Jason Kelly, Carol Masser, right here on Bloomberg. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, everybody, time for the drive to the close. 11 minutes away from the closing bell on this Thursday. A bit of a mixed trade here. Dow higher, but the S&P and NASDAQ showing some losses. Let's get into the markets with uh, Michael Cugino. Back with us, President and Portfolio Manager at the Permanent Portfolio Family of Funds. Roughly $3 billion in assets under management. Uh, Michael joining Jason and myself uh, from San Francisco. Michael, nice to have you back with us. Uh, uh, thanks for having me, Carol. Yeah, hey, uh, we're smack in the middle of earnings. This is, I think, the busiest week for earnings. Uh, when it comes to the season. How are you seeing things and what kind of investment opportunities is that presenting or not presenting for investors? Well, generally speaking, market as a whole, the earnings season's been pretty good. I mean, earnings are up, revenues are up, um, you know, again, speaking broadly. And that was expected, I think, so it's not really a surprise. I think then you get into company specifics and industry specifics, and we've obviously had some high-profile beats and some high-profile uh, non-beats, if you will, um, that have that created a lot of drama this season. But uh, overall, net-net, it's been a pretty good earnings season, and it does solidify the foundation for stock prices potentially going forward if the economic data remains strong and we're able to resolve trade issues and you know geopolitical concerns and and interest rates don't go up too fast too quickly or too high um, and so I think there's a reason to be cautious but the earnings picture for the most part you know broad market has provided a foundation for stocks to move from here and as you look Michael at some of the you know big events or potential events out there. How are you feeling about the Fed these days? We obviously heard a lot um, from Jay Powell in the last couple weeks. We'll hear a little bit more uh, coming up and certainly into the fall. Interest rate hikes, you're still feeling like two, one, where you at? Yeah, Jason. Um, you know, my view is there's probably definitely one more coming. Um, I know the market perceives maybe two, uh, but I think they're going to look at data. I think they're going to look at 
a lot of the data coming in and, and the potential impact on trade and tariffs and the like and maybe decide to watch and wait a little bit. So my view would be they probably do nothing in September and then go again in December. Um, but, you know, I wouldn't be shocked if they move twice. I mean, the economic data has been strong. They don't want to get behind. Um, and the normalization process and uh, the selling of assets off the Fed's balance sheet, I think, is going to continue. It's just a question of how aggressive they want to be in the short term. So we're right in the middle of a rising rate cycle. I think that continues. It does present problems. Um, you know, the short ends rally or the short end rates have rallied substantially. Um, and so you're a move or two away from an inverted curve, um, or at least a flattened curve. Um, the curve's been flattening for a while. And while I don't think it's the same indicator it was years ago, because there's been so many subsidies involved in that curve lately, and so many different um, factors playing into it, it still does uh, make sense to watch it and see where that you know, see where that goes, what it indicates. And so um, I think we're, we're again, cautious. On, for us, we're, we're staying relatively short duration, and we're investment-grade, high-quality balance sheets because we don't quite know where the interest rate moves are going to lead us, um, and that would be across sectors in our fixed-income um, strategies. So and you, mean- so, uh, you, you yep. mentioned the magic T words there, trade and tariffs, and obviously that's something that everyone's been looking at. People were holding their breath yesterday uh, as Juncker went to the White House to talk to President Trump, uh, a news conference or at least an announcement yesterday that they at least were talking and had an agreement in principle. Did that give you a sense of relief about this going forward, or at least the perceived risk of more tariffs and in, in, in a trading environment that's un- uncertain? Well, I mean, I view a lot of that as drama. Mm. Um, you know, I think that there are real issues. You know, trade is a – there's different issues for different regions, right? And and you look at China, and there's very big structural issues there with intellectual property, with access by U.S. firms to Chinese markets unencumbered. Um, those are real issues. Whether we have the political will to tackle them uh, remains to be seen, I think. And, and if we do, then it could cause disruption because the rules of the game have been this way for so long. And so you're, you're changing something after years, in fact, decades across administrations where the rules have been one way. So it's substantial, and that could cause dislocation. With respect to Europe and, and the NAFTA countries, I mean, Mexico and Canada, I think it's more trimming around the edges or refining around the edges. There's no question that, you know, we're not immune to this. We have some tariffs in our own that, to protect our industries, just like Europe and Mexico and Canada do. I, I'd love to see a world where it's, uh, you know, no tariffs, no, no fees, no nothing. Just let everybody compete. I think the United States would do very, very well in that environment. But I also, you know, the realist in me says that it's somewhat of a utopian wish. Um, so I'm not sure that's quite <laughs> yeah. going to happen either. Um, hey, hey but- Michael, let me just ask you, because you guys obviously have a lot of express, uh, exposure um, to precious metals, gold, silver, and all that good stuff. Um, gold not been an easy trade? Uh, gold's been a, gold's been having a tough year. Yeah. Uh, silver as well, and I, I think they've been beaten down unnecessarily. I think it probably relates to the strong dollar um, that we've seen because you know interest rates, Fed versus the rest of the world are high. U.S. assets are in demand. You know all those reasons, um, and so you know the the, the knee jerk reaction of you know gold doesn't produce earnings, so when interest rates go up, sell it. The opportunity cost, all of that. The the problem with that is is though if you have strong 
economic growth, gradually rising rates, inflationary pressures, et cetera, are uh, a byproduct of that. And, and gold is a good asset to hold at some level in that environment. So in a growth economy, and if you do have U.S. growth, if you have global growth improving, um, gold should go up and trend up gradually over time with that environment. So I think for a long-term investor that wants some hedging, um, it's yeah. provided a pretty strong access point um, with the sell-off that we've seen year-to-date here. All right. Going to leave it on that note. Michael, thank you. Michael Cugino, President and Portfolio Manager at the Permanent Portfolio Family of Funds, roughly $3 billion in assets under management. Michael, once again, joining us on the phone from San Francisco. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.